We have a special question and answer day today. Uh, so many came in and normally I like to wait a couple of weeks and it's just been a few days, but some people really felt a need to get an answer quicker. And I thought we can do that. Not always, but we'll do it when we can. Several questions came in about the rod, the message given yesterday in the Monday morning message about disciplining children. And I went fairly quickly through that. And the people would come back and say, but my version says. The fact is, the versions do mainly say that the rod is something you hit somebody with. Uh, whether you're, you're doing the um, American Standard Version, 1901, the King James Version, certainly. Even the New Revised Standard Version, which I really like, they, they go that direction. Uh, so does the English Standard Version, which um, I'm not a, not a big fan of, actually. That one kind of got waylaid by the Calvinist and um, Reformed theology and tweaked a few words in the New Testament that bother me. If you want to know more about that, I would just ask you to read The Making of Biblical Womanhood, uh, a new book which Dr. Barr put out. Um, you will you may think well that's not the subject i'm interested in but it will show you how versions can be tweaked here and there and with and staying within the lines that's important for example in in mark 16 i could say he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved i can go to that word believeth and find a bunch of sub prime meanings for it i can find and you can do that in any dictionary in an, in an english word and so that word believes can even come down to have a good feeling and how about and baptized well baptized means immersion but there are some passages that could ju uh, justify or some usages not in i don't think in scripture but outside that could uh, justify pouring water on you and then shall be saved. One of its sub definitions is preserved or pickled. So I could translate that verse. He that has a good feeling and has water poured on them can be pickled. We would all agree that that would not be the correct way to use that verse, but I did not leave the lines. And a lot of translators move within those lines. And so you have to be careful. And some people will say, well, then we have to go back to the Greek. Sadly, Greek manuscripts also differ. And they were written down by human beings. And I hear all the time, well, we believe that the original manuscripts were completely inerrant. I have problems with that statement because you're saying, I believe that something perfect out there exists uh, that nobody has ever seen, but the product of which is in my hands, which isn't perfect, but since the original was, which we don't have, then it, it gets, gets to a point of absurdity. So I think what we need to say is that we have the words of God written by human hands and accept all the attendant issues that brings. Contemporary English version, is more of a paraphrase and it says don't fail to correct your children you won't kill them by being firm it may even save their lives 
I would submit to you that they went just as far to one edge as the rod and strike them and beat them went to the other. Paraphrases are a little dangerous. Also, Proverbs are a very dangerous thing. In Proverbs, you will find Proverbs that, that contradict each other. Why? Because Proverbs are wise sayings that are frequently true, maybe even usually true, but they're not always true. Think of raise, you know, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, they shall not depart from it. We have all seen parents do everything they can and one or more of the kids goes rogue. Or your parents were brilliant and you went rogue. We get this. It's something which is often true, maybe even usually true. It's a proverb. Uh, Solomon, whether or not he collected this particular book, uh, he collected a ton of them. In fact, uh, scripture has him collecting many times the Proverbs that are in the book of Proverbs because collection of wisdom. But is it always right? And it's all about the application. The um, New Century Version uh, says spanking. Message says spanking. Um, Amplified Version says swat him with a reed-like rod. And I think we all know what that means. That's a switch. So what did I do? Well, I just grabbed that word and went and looked for every place it was in Hebrew manuscripts, in Greek manuscripts, and in the earlier translations, Syriac, Chaldean, whatever we could get. And that word was always used to um, teach and apply the law in these other passages. And there was never anywhere else in there we were told to beat children. Uh, there are certain, at a certain age, they become rebellious, then stoning came in very briefly. Briefly, I, I don't think anybody here would be arguing, well, since they did that then, that's what we should do now. So we have to do the gestalt, the whole of scripture. Go have to take into mind the minds of the translators. And then we have to also see, does this move from here to there, from then to now, our culture, their culture? And because of this, and this is a very grown-up time now, all right? Uh, you don't have to run the kitties out the room. It's not that kind of grown-up. I'd recommend a book that has nothing to do with this passage. It has nothing to do with most of the things we've talked about. But it will help you see how language must be used and seen and applied in their milieu, their, their situation. We read back to Scripture. The only honest way to really get scripture is to go back there and read it forward to our time. A great example of this is John Walton. Um, and he has a lot of these out there in different versions. The, uh, the Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, Lost World of Genesis and, and such. This is the one I want you to start with, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. You will see things are far more complex than you might have thought. And yet you will find great joy in seeing and hearing and learning how some of these scriptures are really applied and really meant to be applied to their day and time. All right. Uh, and I don't get any kickback from Amazon or from John Walton. Um, one question came in about Naaman in Second uh, Kings chapter 5. After he was baptized, he asked the prophet, would you let me take these two big bags of 
dirt home so that I can pour them out and pray to your God. And uh, the questioner was going, well, well I'm not sure I, I get this. When Naaman was not a man that was in control of his own life or situation, one of his jobs was to take the ruler into the pagan temple and help them kneel and then be with them as they said their prayers to their pagan gods. Well, Naaman did not want to be angering the God that just cured him of leprosy. And he wanted to show I'm I have allegiance to this God, but I have to be in that room and I have to do these things. Well, when I was a boy, the, the, the teachers would have just told me, well, it's your job then to withstand them and die faithfully and go to heaven. We were told that about the Russians. We were always told the Soviets are coming through the fold of gap and that if they put a gun to our head and ask if we are Christian, we'd have to say yes. And isn't it interesting, the prophet let him take the, the dirt so he could put the dirt down in certain places so that whenever the, he, he knelt with the king and the king's praying to the pagan gods, Naaman's knees are on the dirt from Israel and he is praying only to the true God. Here's the thing, Naaman didn't need the dirt, but he kind of did. He didn't need it theologically. God didn't need Naaman to do it. Naaman needed the dirt. There were times that Jesus healed with the word. There were times Jesus healed at a distance. And there were other times he spat and made mud and rubbed it on a guy's eyelids. The man needed the ceremony. He needed the movement and the touching. So I've got no problem with Naaman needing it uh, psychologically, but he didn't need it theologically. Um, two related questions here, very sticky, and I'm going to hit them very briefly, uh, but I think they, they do deserve a Monday morning message of their own. Uh, to what degree should Christians involve themselves in politics when opposing views held by brethren seem to cause division within the body of Christ? I'm going to go ahead and read the second one. And since we aspire to be disciples of Christ, what, as far as we can tell from Scripture, were examples that revealed to us his politics. <laughs> I'll answer this in 30 seconds. It'll be thorough and everybody on the planet will agree with me. I'm gonna let the laughter and guffawing die down now. Um, we've had a really rough road with politics, have we not? If you're in Breton, Brexit, leave stay, leave stay. Uh, there have been all kinds of issues there in Germany with immigration, with changing of the rules of where you get your energy and such, it has blown them up. In America, we had uh, we had Obama, Trump, uh, Biden. Uh, the fall of Afghanistan, as I'm talking to you, right, is occurring right now. It's fallen. It's gone. All of these things, plus COVID, and the ever-changing news that we get about you know masks, don't mask, double mask, mask indoors, don't mask indoors you know, mask outdoors, but indoors, if you're not, and just continual. And what we have is this. People uh, are choosing their facts and they're choosing which facts to follow because you can make a good case on almost anything by grabbing the right facts and not using the other ones. So yes, we are very divided, very much divided. So how much should we involve ourselves in politics? I'm not allowed to tell you. I have no authorization in scripture. 
Therefore, I cannot draw that line for you. I can draw some, some lines. This world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. Uh, we are pilgrims and strangers. We should not ally ourselves too tightly to any political party or movement, ever. They're all filthy dirty in so many ways, even the one that you like best. They all do a lot of good and they all do horrific harm. Paul put it to Timothy this way, no good soldier entangles themselves in the affairs of this world. So I cannot change what President Obama, President Trump, President Bush, President Biden, I cannot change what the labor government, the conservative or the Tory government, I can't change anything any of them are doing. So why should I involve myself in something I cannot change? Instead, in a local, on the local realm, within the reach of my hands, I can love people, I can freely give of my means, I can share my food with them, I can share my time with them, I can be kind, and I can do good. That's it. You'll never see a political sign in my yard. You'll never see a political button on me. Uh, closer will be I voted. <clears throat> and, I just, and again, I'm not trying to draw your line here. I stop voting before I get to president. Because when you vote for anybody up in that kind of power, you are, <clears throat> you are giving somebody authority to use the full weight of the law, the tanks and the guns against your neighbors who voted for the other guys. And you might think, well, that's over dramatic there, Patrick. Not so much. If they change a, a certain drug law, <clears throat> then they can confiscate your kid's car, even though your kid had no idea that one of his passengers had a joint in the pocket or a tiny amount of Coke in the, in the pocket. They can, they can take your car. And if they find it on your driveway in some states, they can take your house. It's theirs now. Sheriff got, has it. You might think, what? What? It happens dozens of times every day in America. So would I vote for that policy and a person to use that kind of power against my neighbor? No. No. We have to be very careful that we don't get wrapped up too tightly. But I will not define for you what that means. And as it comes to Jesus and his politics, I've read several books that claim to tell me Jesus's politics, and they are appalling. They have a lot of good in there, but it's like having a glass that's 95% good, but 5% raw sewage. It spoils everything. If you are a Democrat, <clears throat> there are some things Jesus are going to see that's going to absolutely scandalize you. If you're a Republican, there are absolutely things Jesus says that'll scandalize you. If you're a libertarian, you see where this is going? Jesus's politics are not of this world because he was not of this world and neither are we part of this world. You draw your lines. <clears throat> Real quick, great question uh, from a, a deep thinking person that follows our worship. Uh, question about prayer, John, this is in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, talks about pray for each other 
uh, you know, pray for, for the sins of each other and that we would be forgiven. But he goes, there is a prayer, that, uh, a sin that leads to death. And I'm not asking you to pray about that. Um, I don't want to call the name of the man that asked the question. So I'll just call him Doug. All right, Doug, you, you put your finger on one of those troublesome passages. There are four main theological answers to this. And all of them have some good, but leave me dissatisfied. And I have the feeling they would you too. So when I read this, first of all, I confess to my God, I have no certainty what John is talking about. And I can find nobody who can prove to me that they've got certainty for good reason. So I try to do it from a raw understanding of John's time. And to me, it comes down to, we can pray that sins are forgiven, but we cannot, by doing that, expect that consequences are removed. Now, spiritual consequences, I, I believe, are removed. You know, if, I, if I'm a drug addict most of my life, um, I'm going to have serious consequences. Can I be forgiven of those? Yes, but my body will never forgive me the universe is going to kill me because of the way I treated my body. There is a sin that is a sin unto death. And there are other illustrations like that. I, I think of, could I pray that evil Knievel makes it safely across the, 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 the Grand Canyon on his rocket? No, I don't think I can do that. He's being very foolish with the body that he has. He was. Um, I cannot say, God, please preserve him. There are sins that lead to death and consequences are real. Forgiveness is always on offer from a loving God, but forgiveness does not mean restoration of life and health. And again, will that satisfy Doug, the questioner? Probably not, but hey, Doug, I'm not satisfied either. There's, there are passages for which we have no certainty. Last one, I'm gonna do this one and run. Uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew 27 says that when Jesus died, that certain of the saints were resurrected and walked around Jerusalem. Well, that seems that that should be rather newsworthy and we'd like to have more details. None of the other gospel writers refer to it. None of the other writers of the New Testament, Paul, Peter, Jude, none of them refer to it. No early Christian that I can find refers to anything. Were people literally out of their graves walking around? Did they go back after a day? Did they ascend into heaven? It seems we would have more information here. Was Matthew trying to tell a, a spiritual story here? I. This is a weird passage and it has nothing to back it up in history or any other scripture. So I've never preached about it. Uh, because if I'm not certain about something and I don't feel that there's enough backup for me to be certain about it, I don't preach it. It's just weird. And here's another one that's hard. Moses and the Israelites hung out in the desert, love the phrase, hung out in the desert for 40 years. Have you seen or read any archaeological finds of that time to demonstrate this? Here's where I'm going to get the email with websites. No. No, 
I've been told, well, there are satellite images that show these caravan things under the ground as packed soil. We have no indication that that's the Israelites. We know the caravans have moved across those sands using certain routes forever. Are there Israelite bones? Are there signs of long encampment? No. There was a Christian, can I call, I'm going to call him an archaeologist, but he really wasn't. He was a treasure hunter. He wrote a lot of books, got a lot of stuff on YouTube, and everything he went to find, he, he found. The chariots, the Pharaoh under the Red Sea, he found them. Uh, where Moses received the law of God on Sinai, he found it. Everything he looked for, he found. People, that's a warning sign. You don't find much of what you're looking for in archaeology. And no accredited archaeologist has ever agreed with any of those. And yet gullible Christians buy them because they're in such a rush to prove the Bible that they have to grab at these things. And brothers and sisters, it makes us look silly. We don't need to find the chariots. We don't need to say that the 40 years in the wilderness was a literal 40 years. They used numbers in different ways than we do. They use them as symbols, as meanings, and as part of stories. It doesn't bother me a bit that we don't have any archeology span from the Sinai. I understand the story. The point of the story is the point of the story. The main thing's the main thing. Look at the point of the story don't try to autopsy the story by pulling it apart. We don't even know which peak really was Sinai because Sinai is a collection of peaks, rather like Ararat, where the, the ark came to rest. So you want to go up to one. There are some which may be more likely, or at least the, the tradition is much, much older. You know, there at the base of one is the, the, the terribly old um, monastery of, of St. Catherine, for example, but we don't know for certain because, and this is the, the big point, the Israelites did not feel a need to grab totems, signs, and saying, all right, kids, funk, here's a chariot wheel from Pharaoh. We need to remember this. Souvenir hunting didn't get started until Constantine's wife. And she started the whole, let's go back, find the sacred places, and hunt for the relics, and that's when the souvenir, and there are enough splinters of the true cross out there to build a very nice six-story building. There's no reason for this, but I think I've answered the question. Whether I've satisfied any of you or not, who knows, but you know something? I don't go to bed satisfied with my knowledge either, because there are mysteries so instead, what I do is just say, okay, this is a mystery. I accept that. But I know it points me to Jesus, and I'm certain about him. All right, have a great week. Tomorrow, there'll be the, the Bible class posted. Wow, they just keep on coming. Thank you. Email is patrick at rsafeharbor.com. And thank you so much for feeding me and helping Miss Cammie and I pay a mortgage because it is your gifts to us and your love and support that have gotten us this far. Thank you for carrying us.